Um, so the passage for today is Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah and his children, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, whilst Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die, of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. Is this working? Is that doing anything? Excellent. Uh, good to see you here at the EU public meeting. If you're new to the EU public meeting or haven't met me before, my name is Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that serve along here, alongside the EU here at Sydney Uni. So glad you could join us today. We're going to be talking today about a fairly controversial topic amongst Christians and it's also sometimes controversial amongst those who have not yet decided to become a Christian. It's the issue of predestination and election. I didn't particularly choose this topic, it's just that this particular section of the book of Genesis, which we're working through this year, this particular section of the book of Genesis raises the whole topic of predestination and election. Not, not particularly strongly in the text itself, but because the rest of the Bible, when it reflects on this story, it raises questions about predestination and election. So this is a key time, if you're going to deal with this text, to try to think through that issue. So that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. But before we get into it, let's try to have a look at the text, the story we've got itself. We just had the first part of the story read out. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up and look on with the person next to you or pull it up on your phone. I will be pointing out various things over a number of chapters here in this section and then we'll be also looking at what some of the rest of the Bible reflects on this story as well as two key passages. So what we're doing in uh, looking through the book of Genesis, we're about to start a new panel within the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis was not divided up into chapters and verses when it was first written. The person who put it together divided it up into various sections or panels, 12 of them all together, and this particular panel or section starts in chapter 25, there verse 19, where it says, this is the account, or these are the generations of Abraham's son Isaac. So this is how the book is divided up by that sort of phrase, the generations of, 
And then it turns to tell you not actually about Isaac, but about those who came from Isaac. So in particular, the main focus in the panel that the generations of Isaac are about his son, Jacob. So we're going to spend two weeks looking at this fairly long panel. Starts here in chapter 25, goes through to chapter 35. Two weeks in this, then we'll look at some of the rest of the Genesis after that. So the first part of this panel about the Jacob stories, we get the first couple of stories. We read there, first of all, the bit that we had read out for us, about the twins. Isaac and his wife Rebecca. Rebecca falls pregnant. She feels sort of the sort of rumbling going on in her womb as the babies grow and she goes to inquire not of the gynecologist, because such things didn't exist, so she goes to inquire of the Lord. There in chapter 25, the Lord said to her, in verse 23, two nations are in your womb. That's a fairly big pregnancy right there. It's not meaning that actually got, wow, the Australians and the New Zealanders all in there to get no meaning there's two particular kids, two twins, but from these will come whole nations. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. That prophecy there from the Lord to Rebecca, that is really turning on its head the cultural expectation that the older child, even the older twin, remember they're twins, they're going to come out pretty soon after each other, the older, normally the firstborn, would get, most of them get the birthright, would have preeminence within the family. But here the Lord is turning things on its head and saying the older child will serve the younger. That's really unexpected. We're then told, between when the time came, verse 24, they give birth, the twin boys turned out, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. I mean, I've never seen a baby who was sort of full on hairy all over, but I'm sure they loved him very much. (laughs) But hairy, hairy in the language of the day, is what they called him. Out he came and went, Hairy! Or, in the language of the day, Esau. That's what they called it, Harry. And then, but as he came out, if you can imagine the scene, sorry for the graphic sort of trail, if you imagine the scene coming out, out comes one child, out comes, and then head first, and then as it comes out, there's the hand of the next twin is grasping onto the heel of this one. Hey, okay, okay, out comes, and so what are you going to call the next one? Let's call him... He grasps the heel. <laughs> okay. In the language of the day, Jacob. Hence Esau and Jacob. Alright, they come out. Here they are, here the two. So that's how they get their names. Then we come to the second part of the story. Fast forward, verse 27, the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. What this next episode, though, this incident reveals is it reveals something more about their names and names in the Old Testament often had to do with your character. In fact, the Lord's name, God's personal name, Yahweh in the Old Testament, reveals something about his character. I am. I am that I am. It reveals something about his character. Same is true for Esau and Jacob. And this incident reveals... What happens in this incident? Well, verse 27, they grew up. 
Then, verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, banished. I don't know how old they are here. I'm just going to have them get. I reckon, based on Esau's response and how hungry he is, 17 to 21. That's how old Esau is. Esau comes into the open country, banished. He says, Quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And then the writer says that is why he was also called Edom. Esau had a nickname. His nickname was Edom. Edom means red. Named after this red stew that he was so desperate to get his hands on. Maybe also because when he came out, he wasn't just hairy. We're also told he was very red. But babies are often red. But, you know, so he comes out red and hairy and they name him Red or Edom. So that's going to help you when you're reading your Old Testament especially through the prophets, you'll often see the name Edom because Edom becomes a whole nation. Edom is the nation that came from Esau because that was his nickname, Edom, right? Red. See if this red stew, I found it, give me the red stew. Jacob says, first sell me your birthright. That is, give to me everything that you would get as the firstborn. Give me that. I'll give you some stew, sure. Esau says, look, I'm about to die. Now, I don't know if he's actually about to die. That's how he feels. I respect his feelings. What good is a birthright to me if I'm about to die? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gives him the stuff. Esau eats it, gets up and leaves. Not a second thought from what he's traded away for that stew. Not a second thought, it says. And the writer then says to us, thus Esau despised his birthright. He just did not care about his birthright. Now I said this incident reveals something about both their characters. I mean, about Esau, it tells you something about he despises what actually was meant to be his, what was given as a gift to him. He didn't do anything to become the firstborn. He just was under the powers of grace of God. But he despises what's going to come with that. And also reveal something about Jacob. Because what does Jacob mean? The name? It means he grasps the heel. But in, in the culture of the day, that was an idiom, a way of saying, metaphorically, he deceives people. So if you deceive somebody back in the day, they might say to you, yeah, he grasped the heel there. It was a, a way, I, I don't actually know how that works, right? How grasping the heel is like deceiving. Is it because someone's running and you grasp the heel and they fell over? I don't know, that's the only thing I think of. I don't know, but that's just what the idiom was at the time. He grasped the heel means he deceives. So Jacob's name actually means he deceives. And what's he doing here? He's stealing the birthright, he's bargaining for the birthright that doesn't belong to him for just a a bit of stew. And as Esau will say later on, Esau himself perceived this as a deceit, as a deception that was going on. So this incident reveals something about their characters which then will play out as we go on further on. Esau despises his birthright. Now that's a big deal. I mean, my parents are lovely and because they own the little unit villa thing that they live in in Sydney, I guess it means that they're probably wealthy by international standards because if you own anything in Sydney, that makes you wealthy. But, but there's not, there's, they're not wealthy people. There's not a mass, massive sort of inheritance coming my way. 
In fact, I'd be quite happy if they gave it all away. I mean, why do I need their money? They should give it to people who need it more than me. But anyway, that's up to them, I guess. What? I get distracted so easily, don't I? When I talk. <laughs> anyway, the issue here is, does Esau have much of a birthright? Does he have much of an inheritance to look forward to? Maybe he despises the birthright because there ain't much that's going to happen anyway. It's worth it. That is not the case. It's not the case because of the wider story of Genesis that we've been following along. Who was Esau's dad, Isaac? Who was his granddad? Anyone remember? Say it loud. Be bold. Abraham. What had the one true living God promised to Abraham? He promised that his descendants, that there would be heaps of them, that they would inherit the land of Canaan, and that through them all nations in the world will be blessed. That's a pretty big promise. Well, here you've got Esau, Abraham's grandchild, saying, I don't care for my birthright. And I think the, the writer here in Genesis makes it very clear to us by the next story he places, by chapter 26, that's meant to make you go, oh my goodness, what has Esau just done by giving away his birthright? Because the next story feels like a bit of a distraction. It's suddenly the next story, chapter 26, is all about Isaac, who back to their dad, Isaac, and Isaac's interactions with this king in the land of Bimelech, and what's all this? And then you're back to Jacob and Esau. Why do you have this story here about Isaac and Abimelech? It's because in this story, several times, God reiterates his promise explicitly to Isaac. The promise made to Abraham, he says, is now going to come to you and your descendants. And we're reading this going, my goodness, Esau's just given away his birthright. What's he done? He's given away all that the Lord was going to promise through Isaac his dad. You can see it there. In chapter 26, maybe just read the first little bit, verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all of these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So there's the explicit reiteration of the promise to Abraham, now promised to Isaac. And that very inheritance is what Esau has just given away. It reveals to you when he despised his birthright, he was actually despising, wasn't he, the promises of God? That's actually what was going on. So Esau despises his birthright. That's a very big deal. What then happens next? Well, the next sort of story we get in chapter 27 is a second incident. We had the Red Stew incident where Isaac despises, uh, Jacob, Esau despises his birthright. Then we now have um, another incident, the Blessing incident. And I think what this reveals is that God's promises are not based on character. Uh, what I mean is you can see if Esau is the one who despises his birthright, maybe he's not the good guy in the story. You assume there's a good guy in the story somewhere. Not, not Esau. He despises his birthright. Maybe, maybe Jacob's the good guy. Except Jacob's name means he deceives, so maybe not. And as we'll see as we go on in this next incident, 
even Rebecca, their mum, is not really the good guy in the story and even Isaac is not the good guy. In fact, there's no good guys in this story, in this whole family. Nevertheless, what you see is God's promise, his faithfulness, is not based on their godliness of life. It's not based on their good character. It's not based on the good things they do. He just makes his promise as he chooses. Let's begin in this incident in chapter 27. You can see there at the beginning of chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, Esau answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the open country, hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Isaac knows his days are numbered. He wants to pray for his son Esau and sort of give him the, the blessing as his firstborn. Now, we know, as people who read this, what was the original prophecy the Lord made when Jacob and Esau were in the womb. The older will serve the younger. Here's Isaac, though. He's determined to bless his firstborn. He's going to give the blessing to Esau. So he says, go get the food, make me some of that lovely curry or stew or whatever it is. I want to eat that and then I'll bless you. However, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, their mum, was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food for so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father. Just the one. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. But Jacob sort of sees the problem in this plan. He says, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a man with smooth skin. I moisturise regularly. <laughs> what if my father touches me? I, I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother Rebecca said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. He goes and gets the animals, she prepares it, and then they get some goat skin. And he puts some goat skin on his arms and behind his neck. I mean, Esau must have been a really hairy dude, right? <laughs> skin, skin of the animals there, there, there. And I mean, Isaac's old, maybe he also, his sense of touch diminishes over time, actually, he's get older as well. And also put on some of Esau's clothes. And remember, Isaac can't see. So think about all the senses there. Isaac can't see what's going on. In terms of touch, it, it feels like Esau. In terms of smell, it doesn't smell like, you know, washing detergent. His clothes, Esau, I mean, they don't have washing detergent, right? Clothes sort of retain their smell. You know that. You leave your clothes on the floor and just re-wear them after a couple of days resting, right? You know? No? Anyway, that clothes smell like the person, so they've got the, cut, the, the smell lined up as well. Even the food is prepared the way Esau would normally prepare it. So even taste is covered. The only thing they haven't got is the voice, the sound. And that proves to be a little bit of a sticking point. So when Jacob comes in, verse 18, he went into his father and said, My father, yes, my son, Isaac answered, who is it? 
Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac quizzes him a little bit. Wow, that was fast. You got it really fast. And then he also says, you know, come here so I can touch you and know whether you're really Esau. He touches him. Goes, yep, that feels like him. He eats some of the stew. And then he says, verse, um, but he's still not sure. So look at verse 22. Isaac says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognise him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So Isaac blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Two bald-faced lies from Jacob. Absolutely going, I am Esau. And even when he's questioned, he goes, I am Esau. Bald-faced lies. Verse 25, Isaac says, My son, bring me some of the game to eat so I give you the blessing. He does so. In fact, as Jacob brings him in, you can see, verse 28, his father says, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So Jacob went to kiss him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. What's Isaac doing here? He thinks it's Esau. He knows the prophecy, the older will serve the younger, but he's got Esau and he's saying, may the sons of your mother bow down to you. Isaac has decided... To, he's going to ignore the prophecy and put his firstborn in the preeminent place. And yet because of Jacob's deceit, Isaac fails. After Isaac, verse 30, after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food, brought to his father, then he said, my father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently. You can sense that Isaac sort of distressed over it and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud bit of cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? That is, he deceives. He's deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. What's the response? What happens as a result of this whole story? The result, well, when you, if you look at it in chapter 27, verse 41, we're told holds a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing that's been given to him. And then he says, the days of mourning for my father are near. That is, dad's going to die soon. And we'll get through the time of mourning. And then, I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau's had enough. Rebecca, once again, overhears what's said. Rebecca then thinks, right, I need to save Jacob. How am I going to do that? 
What can I, what story can I make up that will save Jacob? So she thinks, right, I need to get Jacob away. Jacob, why don't you go and stay with my brother, your uncle, Laban, who lives a long, long way away. Go and stay with Laban and I'll make up a story to tell Isaac to get him to agree to that. What can I say? So she goes to Isaac and says, I really want Jacob to not marry one of the local women around here. I want him to marry one from our, my own sort of clan, my, our own family back in Haran. So we should send him back there to find a wife. And Isaac says, okay, we'll do that. So Isaac calls in Jacob. Interestingly, in chapter 28, does bless, pronounce a blessing over Jacob. It seems like Isaac has now realised that God's plan, that the older will serve the younger, that's how it's going to be. He reiterates sort of the promise, therefore, to Jacob and says, head off to Laban in Haran, find yourself a wife. And, and so, I mean, he doesn't understand why, what, why this is happening, but off he goes. So that's sort of the result. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob escapes off to find a wife, supposedly, with Laban in Haran. What happens next, and this is the last little bit of the Genesis story I want to cover today, what happens next is that Jacob heads off to Laban in Haran, but remember I said there's a, this, it's this long panel, this long story about Jacob. starts in chapter 25 and verse 35. And basically the whole story is about what, what happens initially, which we've just talked about. Jacob travelling all the way to Haran and spending 20 years there, which we'll talk about next, next week, and then he comes all the way back. But there are two key moments, one that happens on the way there and one that happens on the way back. And the two key moments are where both times Jacob meets the one true living God. Once on the way there, once on the way back. The first time on the way there happens here at a place that becomes known as Bethel. So it's in chapter 28 and it starts in verse 10. Let's have a quick look at it. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it up and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a, saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Huh, it's a stairway to heaven. I just realised that. <laughs> and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Here's the promise that the Lord made to Abraham, which was reiterated to Isaac in chapter 26. Now as Jacob fleeing for his life from Bathsheba and heading to Abraham, now that promise explicitly made to him, to Jacob. It is through you and your descendants, not just to have the land, but through you and your descendants, all nations on earth will be blessed. And notice here that the Lord says, I will be with you wherever you go. There's great confidence, right? Even though you're fleeing for your life at the moment, wherever you go, I'll be with you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. What a great promise. 
My guess is, if you were fleeing for your life, you lie down for a little sleep, you get this vision where the heavens are open, there's a staircase going from you up to the one true living God with angels ascending and descending on it and God makes this promise to you, you'd wake up and go, Woohoo! This has been terrible, but this is alright. This is brilliant. I'm just going, what could go wrong now? Well, maybe you've got a lot more faith thanks to the power of the Spirit of God that's within you than Jacob had. That was not Jacob's response. What was Jacob's response? He wakes up in the morning and he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and he builds, you know, he names it House of God or Bethel. He builds a pillar to the Lord, yes. But look at the vow he makes in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. He doesn't act actually in trust. He says, okay, let's strike a bargain. If you are with me, if you give me everything I need, if you do keep your promise, then I will trust you. Only after you've delivered, then you will be my God. It's not a response, is it, really, of wholehearted devotion and trust at all. It's a bargain, conditional. It's not a great statement of faith. Well, what do we make of this story? So far, what do we make of this? Well, a couple of things I want to point out. Uh, let's first of all think about that moment where Jacob gets that vision, that vision of the stairway to heaven with the Lord at the top, making this promise that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. How will God fulfil that promise? How will he actually bless all the nations of the world through Jacob and his offspring? How's he going to do it? Well, you don't, you're not told you, right? It's just a promise. But you've got the rest of the Bible there that does actually fill out the rest of that story. In particular, if you fast forward all the way through, there is another person later in the Bible who refers back to this moment where there's this stairway going up from Jacob. Well, only one other person that I, I know of refers back to this moment. And that person says, all of those promises made to Jacob at that moment, all of those promises, you know what? Those promises are being realised in me. Which is a pretty big claim. But then that's what Jesus does. He makes big claims. So if you've got your Bible there, you flick to John chapter 1. Very briefly look at just what Jesus said here in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 40, 47, through the end of that chapter, just a few verses there. The situation is, Jesus has called Philip to be a follower of his. So Philip chooses to follow Jesus, but Philip decides, I'm going to go and get my mate Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus too. He goes and finds Nathaniel, brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Jesus looks at Nathaniel, never having met him before, and says... Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Something like that, once you say that. Uh, where is it? 
Yeah, here is a tree of life in whom there is nothing false. Verse 47. Nathaniel goes, what the heck? You've never met me before. How did you like what? What's the story there? Jesus says, oh, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip came to you. That, namely, I had a vision and I could see Philip coming to talk to you and I know who you are. I've had a, a, a revelation from God. That's how come I know And Nathaniel had blown out of his mind. And so Nathaniel then, interestingly, Jesus has identified Nathaniel, right? He's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel then identifies Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Son of, the God, Son of God was a title for the Messiah or Christ or the King within Israel. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Then Jesus says, well, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then adds, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the reference back to what happened with Jacob. But the difference is Jacob saw the staircase, the angels going up and down, descending on him. But Nathaniel and all other disciples are going to see the staircase going up to God, angels ascending and descending on, not on them, but on the Son of Man. Who's become, which is Jesus' sort of code for himself, is the title he keeps for himself from Daniel chapter 7. What is going on there? Jesus is saying, Jacob was the focus of God's promises. Now it's going to be me, the Son of Man. I am the one who fulfills those promises. I am the new focus. In fact, just as God revealed himself to Jacob, now God is going to, you are going to see God revealing himself in and through me. Now, there's no record of any disciples in the rest of the Gospels ever seeing a staircase. So, what, what's Jesus talking about? You will see angels going up and down. On the... Jesus is not saying literally you're going to see a staircase. You're going to have the same vision, Jacob. And he's saying, when you see, right at the beginning of John's Gospel, when you see all of the things that I'm going to be doing, that will be your moment of revelation. That will be the moment when you see heaven open and what God is doing in and through me. As you see me do the miracles, as you see me doing the healing, making the lame to walk, cleansing the lepers, making the blind to see, even dying on the cross, a moment of revelation of God's profound love for the world, the world that had rejected him, the world that needs forgiveness for its sins. His resurrection, a display of God's mighty power, of his great plans of salvation, of the defeat of death. When you see in Jesus all that God the Father is revealing, then you actually see, yes, the Son of Man, Jesus, is at the centre of all of God's plans. The fulfilment, actually, of that promise made to Jacob. Let's think about one more thing to think about before we come to an end. This story about Jacob and Esau is picked up another place in the New Testament as well and that's really important for us as we try to work out what to do with this story. Remember that this whole story of Jacob and Esau started with this prophecy that the older will serve the younger. This upturning of the usual sort of preeminence given to the older. That is picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 9. So can you flick with me now to Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9 to 11. Pretty straightforward. Not. 
But I reckon we could smash it out in five minutes even. Romans chapter 9 starts because Paul is, um, Paul is absolutely gutted. Paul is sad. Sad beyond measure. Why? In this chapter. Because he's been talking all about how God's plans have been fulfilled in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel. But national Israel, the nation of Israel, have rejected that king. They killed him. And they're not putting their, even though he's been raised to life again, they're not putting their faith in him. And Paul, as a Jew, as a member of national Israel, he's gutted by this. How can the Jews, my own people, not be putting their faith, their trust, in, in Jesus, the Messiah, that God has sent for them? How is this possible? So he's gutted by this. But then it also raises a big question, not just, I mean, the big question is, but didn't God promise salvation to his people? Didn't God make all these promises, like to Jacob, that for his people, that they would be saved, that they'd be back in the land and he'd fulfil all his promises to them? If that's not happening, if they're not putting their trust in Jesus the Messiah and they're being excluded from those promises, does that mean that God's not faithful? Does that mean God doesn't keep his promises? That's a big question, right? To call question over God's character. And that's what drives this chapter, chapter 9. And he says there in verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. And this is the key point. He then says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Did you know that Jacob, right, his name means he holds the heel, grasps the heel, also means he deceives. Jacob is given a new name, as we see next week. He's given a new name by God. He's renamed. What's his new name? Israel. Not everyone descended from Israel, says Paul, are actually members of God's spiritual people of Israel. You can be a Jew by birth, that doesn't make you a Jew by the Spirit. It doesn't make you part of God's saved people. That's the key point. And then so to, to, to illustrate that this is not a novelty, this is not something that Paul's just making up, he goes back to the Old Testament and says, this has always been the case. He says, think about Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham, but guess what? Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael. But the promise was made to Sarah and her son, which was Isaac. And then he traces it through to Isaac and Rebekah. Let's have a look there where he says this. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or who had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So he makes a point here that actually Jacob was the one who received the promises we saw and it wasn't Esau, even though they both came from Isaac. But just being part of the same genetic family doesn't make you part of a recipient of the promise. And the key verses here are 11 and 12. Now, I don't know if you're in the habit of highlighting verses on your phone or in your Bible. I'd highlight these two. If you want to understand this chapter, verses 11 and 12 are key. So it gives you an insight into why God is doing this. Have a look again at it. Before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. What's the purpose? It's in the middle of the verse there. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. That is, before they've done anything good or bad, God says the older will serve the younger 
in order that his choosing, his election, his purposes might be, might be made clear and might, might be true. What are God's purposes in choosing? Well, what does the verse say? Verse 12, it's not by works, but by him who calls. God doesn't choose Jacob because of any good thing Jacob had done. He doesn't disregard Esau because of any bad thing Esau had done. He makes that clear by pronouncing it before they were even born. Rather, he shows in that moment that actually he makes promises to whomever he chooses. Not to whomever he deserves it, not according to some criteria of you've earned it or you've got the right sort of godly character. He just chooses who will receive the promises. In this case, he just chose Jacob. Not for anything inherently in Jacob. Not for anything he would go on to do. He just just chose. That's grace. When we say as Christians that God has chosen us, saved us by grace, that's what we're talking about. Two, if you put your faith in Jesus, not because of your good intentions, not because of your awesome skills in ministry, not because you come from a good Christian home. He just chose you before you've done anything good or bad. Just chose you, even though you don't deserve it. That's right. He just chooses. So this is how he chooses. And you might then think, right, verse 14, as Paul sort of develops his argument, what then shall we say? Is God somehow unjust? He's choosing one, but not choosing one. He's choosing Jacob, but not Esau. So his answer there in verse 14 is, not at all. I'll just catch up here. No, I Yeah, alright. <laughs> You've got all that down anyway. Um, is God unjust? No, he's not. What's his answer? Verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire and effort, but on God's mercy. God is allowed, as the one living God, he's allowed to choose whomever he wants to be the recipient of his promise. And interestingly, no one deserves it, so that he chooses anyone is an extravagant act of generosity and mercy and compassion. Since no one actually falls into the I deserve it category. So he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He then then talks a little bit about Pharaoh, which we'll come back to in a moment. But therefore, you can see verse 18, mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, referring there to Pharaoh. If you know the story about Moses and Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus, we're told a couple of times there in that story that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but we're also told a couple of times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which captures sort of the reality that whilst God is at work sovereignly in people's lives and their reaction to him, also human beings make real decisions and are therefore rightly held accountable for those decisions. There's both divine sovereignty and genuine human accountability and responsibility. The Bible holds both together, which you can see in the Pharaoh story. Then he goes on though in verse 19, one of you will say to me though, then why does God still blame us? Makes a good point actually. If it's just God choosing and he 
has softened some people's heart, has mercy on some and hardens others, then how can he hold us responsible? If he's not sort of chosen me, how can he hold me responsible for my rejection of him? It's a good point. Look at Paul's answer. His answer is, what's your attitude there? You be careful what you start sort of saying about God. You be careful what you, what you sort of, when you start pushing back a bit beyond your station to the one true living God. You can see what he says there. For who, resi- uh, but who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? He's saying God, the Creator, can do whatever He likes, right? You don't get to dictate what's fair or right to Him. That's up to Him. Especially when none of us actually deserve it. When it's always an act of mercy. But then He does give a little bit of an insight into what God's purposes may be. Verses 22 and 23 are also key for this chapter and are also the other verses I think you should highlight or notice. It's a key reflection and I think he's reflecting again on the Pharaoh story. As he reflects on the Pharaoh story and he thinks, what was God doing in hardening Pharaoh's heart? What could possibly be of God's purpose? This is what he concludes. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? That is, if you know the story of Moses and Pharaoh, there's all these plagues. The one true living God was very patient with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Why was he patient? He was patient to show both his judgment, his wrath against sin, he was showing that, but also showing his great power. Who was he showing his power to? Well, he was showing it to Pharaoh, but he was also showing it to the Israelites, who were slaves in Egypt. Because from their perspective, this was a battle between two gods. Pharaoh claimed to be a god, and this Yahweh claims to be the god. Who's got the greatest power? It's a battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And so God, patient with Pharaoh, displays his wrath, shows his power to his own people, the people he wants to save. That's what verse 23 says. What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy? who be prepared in advance for glory. And then Paul transports that forward in the light of Christ to the current day, present situation, and says, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is what God is doing. He chooses whomever he wants, but in so doing, he displays his mercy and power, and yet even his judgments to all. Now, how do we respond to this? I'm completely out of time. That's such a shame. Because I had this really cool free screen work from John Calvin. Because the big question um, is this, out of, out of all that sort of teaching that we've gone through just then, the big question is this, how do I deal with this personally, pastorally? If it's all up to God choosing, then how do I know if I'm chosen? John Calvin had some really good pastoral insights on this. But I need to finish, don't I? It's five to so you'll just have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> just drop in in the last five minutes tomorrow at public meetings and I'll...
try to get there earlier. But we'll just, I'm sorry.